Amen. Man, thanks, guys. My name is Mike Hall, one of the pastors here at Bethel. Uh, man, and I like it here. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for clapping for that. That was, that was sweet. Um, man, I, I do. I, I like it here. It's way fun. The fact that uh, you get to hear songs that have never been uh, played before, written, and will probably never be played again. Uh, it was awesome here. You get the looking back at the sound. I don't know if you know all what's going on with the different floors you do with the screens. It is an NFL broadcast back here uh, in order for us to get to worship together as one church family across all floors. It's, it's pretty cool. I have been... Uh, Again, Mike Hall, I'm married to my first wife, and we have four kids, uh, and we've been at Bethel now for six years, and I love it. Uh, One of the things that I love about Bethel is that the people here at this church like to have fun together. They like to laugh. They like to be together. I was at a wedding just a little bit ago, and all of a sudden looked around and realized that the last people there are all Bethel people, and they're all hanging out and having a great time. So we are anything at Bethel but Debbie Downers. Here we go. Wah, wah. Debbie Downer. Wait, that's not Bethel. And this morning, we're going to actually look at some Debbie Downers in Scripture, some killjoys to the gospel. I, I don't know what you think of when you think of Jesus or what you think of when you think of Christianity, if killjoy is a piece of that, that there's, there's some beliefs that, uh, that if you are solemn enough if you're maybe miserable enough or sad enough that somehow that makes you more Christian or more holy or more spiritual. But Jesus is, Jesus is the opposite of that. If you look at Jesus of Scripture, you'll find a guy that people wanted to be around. I imagine if Jesus was here in this room today, he would probably go home with one of us afterwards and watch the football game and hang out, and have a drink, and wrestle with your kids on the floor, and have some barbecue. He'd listen to your jokes. He'd probably tell a few of his own. And then he'd stay later, and you'd end up having one of those conversations that you felt like, wow, I was really heard and listened to, and that it would probably even change your life. That's the Jesus of the scripture, the, the Jesus that you'd want to be around and hang out with, that you wanted to invite him to your party, 
He was the party. And if we even look at this first part of Luke and how we've been looking at Jesus and what he's done, he doesn't just heal someone. He does it in a way where they tear a roof, tear the roof up and, and brings them down in front of everybody. He, he goes to the tax collector's house where they party and they drink and they uh, have lots of food and this banquet that Jesus is in the midst of all of the fun and the good stuff. And meanwhile, the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're grumbling. <sighs> They're very serious. They're very holy. And there's going to be no fun to be had around here. So this is the scene in Luke as we continue to walk through. And we see that the Pharisees now are, are going to directly address Jesus. And, and they're going to address uh, some of this posturing or how he, how he acts. And so, so let's look here. If we turn your scriptures to Luke chapter 5. And we're there at the end in verse 33. We're going to go through just a, a couple of verses here. So in verse 33... Dr. Luke writes, and they said to him, the Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John fast often and they offer prayer. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, yours eat and drink. So we pause here for a second. If you see what the Pharisees are doing, they're aligning themselves with John the Baptist. Now, uh, John the Baptist, if you remember, uh, he wore simple clothes. He didn't marry. He fasted often. And so the Pharisees are going, hey, hey, yeah, we're, we're kind of like your guy, Jesus. We're like John the Baptist. Now, of course, John the Baptist would not identify himself as the Pharisees. Uh, John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees often for their hypocrisy. But the Pharisees are seeing an end going, hey, I'm seeing a way that Jesus is not like John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is more like us. So maybe we can triangulate and get Jesus here. So on one hand, this question is about fasting, and Jesus recognizes that, but he also sees that this is a much bigger question than just about fasting. This is talking about an old system and a new system, about law and grace. And so as Jesus answers this question, uh, he's going to go to the heart of the matter. So Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So the way uh, a wedding worked back then is that you would have uh, the bridegroom, which we call the groom, uh, and then you'd have the bride. And the bridegroom and the groom, would, him and, and his family and friends, would go to the bride's house, and they would take her. And then there would be this processional through the town and a party as they all walked from the bride's house to the groom's house. So they would do this walk all the way there. And on the way there, it was, a, it was like a parade celebration. We're excited. This is happening. And they'd get to the groom's house. They would do the ceremony. And then the party would continue. And the party wouldn't just last uh, that evening, that night, but it would sometimes go an entire Week Now, a week-long party, it's hard for me to get my arms around what that might look like. Uh, I, so I think of it more of a, maybe a, an extended, long staycation with friends, right? That this is going to continue to go on and on. So you have obviously planned a lot to have this kind of wedding, right? I mean, some of you have planned for weddings before, and you take six months, and it's like an hour and a half, right? This is a week long. So you think of 
the food and the all hands on deck and how, how you're uh, all coming together for this. And so as everyone's together, friends, family, both sides, uh, you're having drinks and you're having food and you're coordinating. I'm sure they played Taboo and Skippo and did all of the fun party things that you would do for a week. And Jesus said, hey, in this kind of celebration, when we're having a, a wedding, a party, this is not going to be the time to fast. That would be maybe us of Thanksgiving meal, and we all sit down, and someone goes, how about we fast this meal? You're like, no, 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 not now. This isn't the time for that. This is the time to celebrate. This is the time uh, to, to be together. And, and Jesus then, just as a side note, says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. This is just the first time that Luke mentions of what is to come with Jesus, of his crucifixion, that he knows what's going to happen and, and makes mention of it then. Now, when it came to fasting, the, uh, the Pharisees were experts. So the Jewish law uh, would say that there's time to fast once a year, and then the Jewish tradition has, has taken that to say we're going to fast four times a year. But the Pharisees said, no, 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 we're super spiritual. We're going to fast twice a day. Every Monday and Thursdays, the Pharisees fasted. So they were very much into the fast. And the reason they were into it is because there was this belief that the, the more pain you could do to your body, the more harder you could make it for your flesh, the, the more spiritual, the closer to God you would be. This is called aestheticism. And it is one of the killjoys of the gospel is aestheticism. That you can uh, make pain is good, pleasure is bad. And today, when we want to look at how does that kill the gospel for us? How, do we, how might we be modern-day aesthetics? How do we see that God, uh, or how might we believe that God wants us to have pain? And I've heard this a couple times. People jokingly would say something like, don't pray for patience because God might give it to you. This sense that like then he's going to really make you be patient, and he's going to give you all kinds of trials. Or this uh, thought that the other shoe's going to fall. Hey, good things are happening right now. My life is good. So I've, I'm a little bit nervous because of this God karma that he's going to come get me here. He's given me a little bit of good time, but what he's really going to do is sucker punch me when I'm not ready. And that, that we have this picture of, of God that pain in itself and just for the sake of pain is somehow uh, making us more spiritual. And I guess God uses hard times for, and, and uses pain for his sake and his glory. But the pain in itself, there's nothing inherently spiritual about pain. Uh, and God doesn't want that. Our, our father is a good father. He loves us. He wants good for us. So then Jesus continues on and he tells him a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the pieces from the new will not match the old. So if you think about it, you have a hole in your pants, right? And you've been using these pants for a long time because they've got a hole in it. And these aren't like the new cool pants you buy that already pre-hold. These are like worn hold pants, right? So you, you have a hole in your pants and you want to put a patch on it. And so if you take a, a piece of cloth and you just stick it on your pants, then the the pants have already shrunk. The new patch is going to start shrinking. It's not going to match, right? It's going to pull on the, your jeans or your clothes. And so it's, it's going to not 
mesh up. The old and the new aren't going to work together. He, he talks about wine here as well. He says, and no one puts the new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So this is how this worked. I'm talking about wineskins. Uh, in order to make wine what they would do is they would have this uh, big kind of bowl. Sometimes in Palestine it would be a, a rock that was sort of carved out. Sometimes they would use uh, stones, pebbles, and then put clay and harden it there. And then you would take all of the grapes and you would dump them in this big bowl, and then you would, in an I Love Lucy type style, stomp literally on the grapes, all right, barefooted. And so, and I'm, I'm sure they had germex back then in Palestine's days, and, and so I'm sure it was sanitary, but they would, they would stomp on the grapes, and then the juice would go through this trough down uh, from, this, from this big bowlish area, and it would go into what was wineskins. The wineskins were literally uh, goat skins. They would take a goat uh, and take its body. They would chop off the, the arms and legs, and they were, I guess they're all legs. I don't know if the front ones are arms on a goat or not, but, but they would chop off all the appendages for the, for the goat uh, and then tie them off. And so the wine would come down and fill into this goat skin. They, they would clean the goat skin, they would tan the goat skin, and they'd fill it to the very top and tie it off because they didn't want any air in there, otherwise it would, it would turn to vinegar. So they put this goat skin, the wine would go there. Well, then, over the next couple of weeks, carbon dioxide would come out with the fermentation, but it would have no place to go, so the wine skin would just expand, and it would do that. The, the goat skin would expand out and would stretch, and after a couple of weeks, the fermentation would stop, and then they would be able to drink the wine, or they would store it longer to age it. So Jesus is going, hey, if you, you take an old wineskin, a wineskin that's already been used and fermented, and you try to put new wine into this old wineskin, the new wine would go into the old wineskin, but when it would start stretching, it's already been stretched out. It doesn't go back to its original size, so it's when it stretches more, it's going to bust. It's going to break the wineskin. It's going to ruin the wine. He, as Jesus is talking about the old and the new, what he's talking about is the gospel of grace and the law. He's saying these two things are not compatible. And in fact, by, by trying to live in this old system of laws, when we have the gospel of grace, that is a killjoy to the gospel. It, it's called legalism. And then if you try to live with legalism, it's going to kill all of the joy out of the gospel. You can't sprinkle a, a little bit of the law into the gospel of grace. It doesn't work. And this, this now comes through our culture all the time. It's when you hear things like, oh, he's, a, he's a good Christian boy. He's a good Christian man. What do we mean by that? We don't mean he confesses his sin often. No, we mean he's moral. That we've oftentimes confused morality with Christianity. And, and sometimes we think, you know, a, a little morality might, might do us some good. It might help us uh, live the right way. And, and if that's our thinking, we're going, hold on, we're missing the point. There's one thing to say, hey, I am a Christian, and God has done good to me, and I live into that. And I walk in the Spirit, and I am thankful that I am loved and I know that I'm loved. And the fruit of the Spirit produces good moral things. I live uh, and want to live my life in a way that pleases God, in that way that, uh, that 
is moral and good. But the morality and the good that I do, if that becomes the point, then I miss the point. That's legalism. Uh, sometimes you see this in like uh, accountability groups and that you get in a group of people together, say, okay, let's all get together and do good together instead of getting together and saying, hey, do we realize how much God loves us? And how do we love him? It's a, a relationship that we're talking about. It, it's the cuss jar that you have, right? Oh, I can't say that word again. I've got to put a quarter in to give it to a charity and that's going to really please God the most. No. Uh, growing up, I, I lived in a house that had uh, some legalism. And during Christmas time, we had this uh, nativity scene, right? So you've got the little, uh, you know what a nativity scene is, right? The little manger and the sheep and stuff that you all put around there. And the, our, in our house, the manger was empty. And so on Christmas morning, my parents would put Jesus in the manger, right? Because he's born, it's Christmas. That was the thing we did. So the months up to Christmas, uh, Advent season, what we had is this kind of jar bowl of straw. And any time we did a good deed, we got to take a piece of straw and put it in the manger so that Jesus could be more comfortable when he was born. Now, as a kid, uh, I would just go to the manger and break all the straw in half, so my parents thought we did twice as many good things as we actually did. Um, but that's the kind of stuff you do with the law, right, is you, you find the loopholes and you make it work. But if we think about how asinine that is, that making, that taking straw and doing good deeds is going to make Jesus more comfortable, it's ridiculous. But that's a little bit of taste of legalism, that we're going to do some good things and that's going to make God a little bit more comfortable. He's going to be a little bit more pleased with us because of all the goodness that we can do. It's like, no, we can't meet God halfway or even a little bit of the way. There's nothing good that we can do on our own. It's only because of him that we can do anything good. It's legalism. How, how do you know it's in your life? It might be interesting to ask yourself, where in my life do I say I ought to? That if we could get rid of the ought to-ness in our life, or where in our life do we have a lack of joy? Or when it comes to when we think about our walk with Christ or our, our spiritual walk, does it give us anxiety? What do we find ourselves getting angry at? Are we angry at things other than sin? The Pharisees, remember, they're grumbling all the time. They're legalists. They're frustrated because other people aren't thinking the way they're thinking. Again, there's a difference between being saddened by sin and legalist. And one of the marks to say, where, where is my joy in this? We are... We're under a new system, a system of grace and not a system of the law. And Jesus knows this is difficult because when we look at the next verse in verse 39, he continues on and says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Or some translations, NASB, Net Bible, says good enough. When we look at how that word is translated in context. No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good enough. The old is good enough. That's a, a way that if you grew up in a place or have a history of legalism, Jesus knows that, you know what? it's super easy to fall back into thinking that the old way is good enough. Now, it's also a side note, interesting note, that Jesus does understand good wine and that the longer wine 
the older wine is, the, the better it gets. But the trap to say, hey, our old way is good enough, is a dangerous place to be. And it's easy to get there. When we really look at legalism or making morality the ultimate goal, I can get how we can say, hey, this is good enough. Because if we just focus on morality, if we just focus on legalism, maybe it keeps your son from drinking and driving. Maybe it keeps your daughter from getting pregnant. Perhaps it keeps your husband from looking at things on the internet or your wife from becoming a gossip. I mean, a little bit of legalism might be kind of helpful, right? No. It's a lie. That when our focus becomes on being better and being good, we're nullifying the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus is focused. Jesus did not die for us to have morality. Jesus didn't die for us to be better, gooder kind of people and try harder. Does that sound like good news? Does it sound like good news that someone died so I can put a quarter in a jar every time I cuss? Does it sound like good news for, for me to ha feel horrible about myself because I didn't spend 30 minutes having a quiet time this morning? Is that life to its fullest? No. That's legalism. That's making the point of the gospel us doing good. And if that's what you've thought about Christianity, if that's what you've thought about who Jesus is, let me invite you to something rich. Let me tell you some good news. Is that Jesus died because we can't be good enough. Jesus died because he said, I love you so much and that you're sinful and that you're fallen and that your, your sin costs something. It costs death. And I'm going to die for you. That's the good news. And so when we live, we get to live freely. We get to live, and we get to live without, uh, we, we get to live without having to sin. We get to live, and we get to do good because we know that good has been done to us, not because we have to do good. Legalism. It kills your joy, and it rips apart the gospel of grace. But also, to be a legalist is, uh, is sometimes safer. If we have a list of rules to follow, uh, then we know what to do. But if we live in being with a relationship with God, we have to rely on the spirit that lives inside us. And it's a little bit riskier. It's a little bit scarier. So I might ask us all, where are the places in our life that we need to live by the Spirit and not by the set of rules, but by saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? What does that look like? Do you need to dance a little bit more? Do you need to drink wine at weddings? Do you need to say things to people that uh, might turn heads? It's a great examination of our life. It'd be fair for us to say, hey, if if there's not Pharisees around us questioning our freedom, our love for Jesus, are we the ones who are being Pharisees? I don't know. As Christians, our focus gets to be on being 
known by God and loved by God. A, a God who wants us to live life and live life to its fullest. That's where joy is and that's where life is. So as we look and examine our lives, I think that today would be our, my challenge to myself as a place to start to say, where in my life do I not have joy? What are the killjoys in my life that are keeping me from Jesus? Is it legalism? Is it feeling like just pain is good for the sake of pain? What is Jesus inviting us into to have joy? Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us because you died for us, even though we did not deserve it. And so we thank you. We want to live holy lives, not out of duty and obligation, but just out of a response of joy and being thankful. I pray for everyone here in this room that doesn't have joy in times and that has anxiety and frustrations. I pray that you would reveal to us where those are coming from and that you would replace those with joy. Now we love you. We thank you for this church and this church family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.